people just like you have taken the brave step to do this thing we call work differently. They tell their self-unlimited story to inspire and encourage you. Another story begins now. Today, it's my great pleasure to be speaking with Cassie. Welcome, Cassie. Hi, Helen. Great to be here. Cassie and I have crossed paths a few times over the last few years, and there's a common theme around self and empowering self and listening to self and doing stuff with self. Cassie's written a book around the notion of self-fidelity, which I'm sure she'll tell us a little bit more about. But to kick us off, Cassie, tell us what started this journey of exploration for you. Hmm, good question, Helen. Well, it's taken me about three years to really capture and explain what do I mean by this idea of self-fidelity, and that's the title of my book. And self-fidelity is a phrase that I coined, and to me it really is about this practice of figuring out how to be true to ourselves. What? How do we uh, restore faith? How do we restore trust in the very best version of ourselves? And this has been a journey for me for about 10 years now, probably the last decade of my working life as a high-flying corporate executive and trying to figure out when we work and live in a world that is really constantly perhaps trying to convince us that who we are is somehow inadequate or perhaps somehow inconvenient. I was really determined to figure out well, how, how might I stay true to myself living and working in, the, in this type of world and what would it feel like if I could really have this sense of faith in myself that, that was unshakable and that, that's what really led me to writing the book and now establishing the Centre for Self-Fidelity, which is all about supporting people to to be true to themselves. I imagine there's some people like, how dare you? I don't get to be like that. Whereas my reaction is, yay, this is wonderful. Because (laughs) that spirit is partly behind why I created the notion of self-unlimited and that I wanted individuals to recognise they have a voice. And sometimes that voice they might feel isn't clear, isn't powerful, isn't being used. And sometimes it's because that voice they think of, it's my ability to say something, but it's also about, and what would I say? What do I believe? What do I stand for? What is that essence or that core of me? Which is what I love about your work, that finding what that voice is and then giving an opportunity to express itself. Mm, yeah, and it took a lot of courage for me to find my voice and to write the book. It's, it took me three years to actually find my voice and to believe deeply enough. Well, I always believe deeply enough, but to have really, I suppose, the confidence to put this out, idea out in the world because there's a, there's a part of me, there's a voice in my head, like for many of us that keeps saying, you're not qualified enough, you're not experienced enough, you've not worked with this enough in the real world. Who do you think you are putting this in a book? And I really had to work hard to turn down the volume of the voices in my head, that particular part of me that I know really wanted to keep me safe, but inadvertently was keeping me small. And that's been part of my personal practice of self-fidelity is getting to know these parts of myself that prefer to play it safe and keep small to turn down the volume on those voices in my head so I could just reconnect back to the most powerful ways of being that I know and it's through these ways of being that I'm able to do the work I do. 
when and how did you get an inkling that maybe the essential voice of Cassie wasn't being heard and needed to be given attention? Oh, well, I think it was more of a crisis. Like, if, if I'm honest, like for many of many stories of, of uh, I think people who find themselves in this type of work, there's a point where you have an O-S-H-I-T moment and yes. realise the, the way I've been doing things is not going to get me where I want to go. And for me, that was having spent over 20 years as a corporate high-flying senior executive in these big global executive roles, travelling around the world, living in Europe, coming back to Australia, climbing the ladder, and yet feeling this deep sense of being out of control. I, I, I remember feeling like I was on a roller coaster ride that was getting faster and faster and faster. I knew the ride was making me sick, but I had no idea how to slow down the ride, let alone how to get off the ride. And I think that ride I now understand was the ride of a woman who had this shadow of low self-worth, who didn't really trust in herself, who didn't really believe I was enough or that I was worthy, that I was on this mission to prove myself, to achieve my way to worthiness, you know, to collect enough gold stars and enough accolades, big fancy job titles and big fat salary packages in the hope that I would one day feel like I was enough and the moment when the penny dropped Helen was I was at a leadership retreat and I met a woman who was running an emergency ward at a big public hospital and she stood in front of the group and she kind of confessed with tears rolling down her eyes that she felt like she had no value in the world and I remember thinking holy crap Mm. if you are literally saving lives every day and you feel like you have no value in the world There's no job title, no project, no top talent accolade, um, no salary package that's going to get me to where I'm desperate to get to. And I realised I had to find a different path. And that's when I figured out that, okay, how might I cultivate a sense of belief, trust in my worthiness, my uniqueness, my power that is internally referencing rather than externally referencing. That, That was a big moment that I couldn't achieve my way to worthiness and had to forge a completely different path and a path that really was about me cultivating faith in myself. You talk there about power and power has a notion of status, but I'm wanting to pick up on the idea of power as energy. And I remember an early conversation with you about zest and that there was a sense for you that maybe zesty like energy was missing from your life or you were attempting to find and reclaim zesty like energy. Tell me a little more about that. Yeah, so I think that's why it took three years to write the book because it started off, I think my working title was My Quest for Zest, (laughs) which, you know, in retrospect, probably a tad gimmicky, so I'm glad we didn't end up with that book. But it's got a lovely vibe to it. Zest is one of the essential ingredients of of my essential nature. So I think about our essence as, you know, you might go to an essential oil shop and there's all these little jars that have all the very best human qualities on a nice little rack which says, you know, the best virtues of humankind. Here they are. I'm seeing the imagery. (laughs) This is the slide I'm building at the moment for my program, actually. So you imagine this shelf of essential oil blends. Zest is there, kindness, forgiveness, 
love, wisdom, love of beauty, compassion, courage, creativity, playfulness, they're all there. And we're able to figure out, well, how do the very best qualities of humankind blend and express themselves through me in a unique way? And I, I believe that unique expression of the very best of human nature is unique to each of us. It's as unique as our fingerprint. And for me, I think I'm probably three parts zest, two parts kindness, and then there's a part of me that kind of has this courageous leap before you look kind of attitude, which is sometimes helpful, sometimes needs to be tempered. But yeah, zest is a big part of my essential nature and staying connected to my zest is fundamental to my well-being, my performance and my ability to really activate my potential in this lifetime. And so I started there, but I quickly realised that whilst zest is probably the central ingredient for me, it's not, of course, the same for everyone. And I really worked hard to create a methodology, a practice of self-fidelity that was inclusive and that was in no way going to privilege or preference certain types of people over others i really wanted everyone to find a practice that's going to help them reconnect to their version of zesty playful courage which is really my asset but no one else's <laughs> i'm almost imagining at this point i get to walk into a shop and i get to pick up the essence and think hmm you know, that one's not for me. Mm, oh, this one, there's something about that one. Oh, I'm going to take that one and this one and mix it together. And even to take, we're, we're playing with lots of metaphors here, aren't we? It's almost like then there's an aroma that Helen can bring to the world and maybe leave to the world, just as there's an aroma that Cassie can bring to the world and leave mm. to the world. I love that. And I think we all have what I would call our most positively powerful way of being. And this way of being, our essence, is enduring through our whole life. So it was there when we were little children. Perhaps it was shining brightest, actually, when we were little children, the world before the world started putting us into little places where it thought we should probably squeeze ourselves into so it was there when we were children it's enduring it's good it's powerful and it's indestructible our essence is indestructible and sometimes when I coach people and they and we start talking about okay how do we help you reconnect to your your most positively powerful ways of being how do we help you to anchor into these states and there's this double-barreled fear that sometimes comes up for people, which is, oh, my gosh, I have no idea who I am. And that's quickly followed by the second fear, which is, and what if I figure it out and I don't even like myself? I think the really relieving thing, uplifting thing about this work is that at our core, we are good. We are all good. And over the years, yes, we've all created this hardened shell you know sometimes I use a picture of a little armadillo you know with this hardened exterior yes we've had to put around ourselves to protect ourselves because let's face it the world of work is a heartbreaking place right and we've had to protect we've had to shield and harden but beneath it doesn't matter how many layers of hardened exterior we've built up over the years beneath all of that there is goodness and there's power and I think that's what I find one of the most rewarding elements of my work is is reminding people firstly you have nothing to prove to anyone you are a unique being and that you have this powerful goodness that's at your core that can become this like renewable energy source for you if we can just figure out how to get you connected back into it so it's pretty cool 
You have a couple of really lovely concepts about waking up and letting be. Let's start with waking up. What's your advice or suggestions for somebody who might be thinking, I don't know, am I awake? Am I not awake? Or, you know, I'm coming out of a slightly dream state. How do I take myself even further to wake up? The way I describe the practice is in an infinity loop where there's four elements, waking up, letting be, letting go and letting in. And these four elements really combine a lifelong learning loop that just keeps going and going as we work more deeply and more deeply. So for me, waking up has been the threshold because as I said earlier, I think uh, I'll speak for myself. So we all have different parts of ourselves. Our psyche it has got multiple components of it. And I draw heavily on the work of Richard Swartz and internal family systems therapy, which Richard Swartz is associated with Harvard Medical School. There's, it's a very robust evidence-based framework that says we all have parts. And sometimes these parts of us can pull us away from our most positively powerful ways of being. And so for me, waking up is really about remembering that my thoughts, the voices in my head may or may not be true. My thoughts are certainly not instructions on how to behave. And my thoughts are probably unlikely to be reflecting my most empowered state. And I say in the book that even trying to figure out who we really are by trying to figure out which of the voices in my head represents the real me is kind of like a dog chasing its tail. You know, we just go round and round in circles because actually our true nature, who we really are, it's not represented by any of those voices in our head. It's represented by this state of being that, that transcends all those voices. I, I think it was Pema Chodron, the Buddhist teacher, who said that, you are the sky and everything else is the cloud, right? So how do we wake up to change our relationship with our thoughts to be able to have that spaciousness when we have a thought not to automatically just follow it as an instruction on how to behave? So this is really very similar to the core foundation of a mindfulness practice, of course, creating this sense of spaciousness, being able to ask ourselves is this thought true can I know for sure it's true and if I was to follow this thought as an instruction on how to behave am I going to be moving closer or further away from the best version of myself that's really the essence of the waking up practice it comes to me there's an element of compassion in there for self in that it might be okay I hear that voice Thank you for what you're trying to do or maybe that you have been protecting me. Okay, now you can sit down and move to the back. Uh, thank exactly. you for somebody else. You you have been in a state of rage or anger and maybe fueling me to recognize that my values have been violated or there's been some injustice. I hear you. I see you. Thank you. You can move to the back. And that it's almost like giving an opportunity for those voices, not to tune them out, but to allow them their moment to recognize what they have provided and maybe thank them for the role they have played while also recognizing because I think sometimes we have that but I shouldn't have needed to be angry or I shouldn't need mm. to be compassionate like in an ideal world all these things should have happened and I know for myself I have a process thinking it is what it is Mm -hmm. I, I am where I am right now. So what do I do with these things? Can I just be compassionate to myself? Because I think about the waking up, there was no singular big 
come to this realization moment. There were small micro moments over time and it can be easy to miss them, but it can be easy to overlook them and not appreciate them for being a signal. And I think sometimes we look for big signals, strong signals to wake us up. And I would invite people listening to consider, are there weak signals? And can I pay attention Mm. to weak signals that are maybe I am waking up or maybe something hasn't been right or maybe there's an opportunity to think about things differently. And I, yeah, like I say, in my own life, I look back and there were many, many, many signals that maybe got me to a more fully awake status. There was no big moment, singular waking up. Absolutely. So for me, at least, waking up is a moment by moment practice. And, you know, we're on autopilot most of the time. I mean, that's how we function, right, as humans. Most of our days spent in habitual behaviors that we've done many times over. And so we need to rely on this autopilot mode, of course, to function. But in these key moments, are we able to override the autopilot, realize that we're in autopilot, realize that actually we've been swept away by these voices in our head and that we're just kind of blindly been swept away quite literally and showing up in ways that's really not reflective of who we really are. And so for me, uh, waking up, I wish there was a finish line where I could cross and forever more be, you know, free of the clutches of autopilot or this kind of reactive state being driven by less empowered versions of me. It's a constant vigilance, really. And, of course, there's still, you know, I I might uh, manage to wake up half the time after having done this practice for a long time. I still, on, on a daily, hourly rate gets swept away or caught up in my thinking where I find myself on autopilot before I realize oh no wait a minute that that thought I just had is probably actually not true and I can choose a different thought a a different perspective and from that new perspective reconnect to a better version of myself but it requires ongoing vigilance for me anyway (laughs) and I like that notion that it's ongoing waking up moments because even if we thought oh I'm good today thank you world life what you've brought me I'm in a good position I'm anticipating I will still be alive for another four or five decades given medical science So there will still be waking up moments to come. And if I can hold that thought, then maybe I can hold some room of compassion and kindness for myself now about however much waking up I think I was supposed to have achieved by this moment. Because I think for people who have been working for 20 or 30 years, and maybe they're looking at younger people like, oh, the things they have available to them now, the knowledge that's out there about mindfulness and and empathy. Gosh, if only I'd had that. And you can get stuck in a cycle of like, there's something wrong with me if I've not woken up till now. But I think if you take a kindness approach and think, there's always been moments of waking up. I have the opportunity to respond to them or not. And if I don't respond to them in a moment, that's not a black mark on me. That's just simply maybe I had other things going on right now that were more important. However, I can trust there will be more moments of waking up opportunities to come. Absolutely. And we've all had moments of presence, you know, the opposite of being on autopilot asleep, to be fully awake and fully present and fully connected to 
our gifts and our most powerful ways of being is, you know, when you're in flow in a creative space, when you're in nature and, and you're really just there present in the moment, when you're, you know, in an embrace with a loved one, when you are feeling playful and joyous, when you're feeling a true connection to another person, these are all moments of wakefulness. These are all moments of presence and connection. So we can all wake up, we can all be present and connected. It's really, for me, it's how far off course do I drift before I realize and I can course correct. And so I think it like a sailing boat that's constantly tacking back on course, right? Before I, I really was, I, I suppose, focused on this work, I would drift way off course. You know, I would get swept up. You know, one of the classic examples for me is that I had this voice in my head that if I came home from the office, this is back when I was a high-flying executive, I'd walk in from a hard day's work, and I had this part of me that would convince me that if my husband hadn't asked me how my day was, that meant that he didn't care about me. And I could spend the whole evening being really quite mean to the people that love me the most just because this part of me had actually won, that it had convinced me that my husband didn't care about me because he hadn't asked me about my day, which is sheer ridiculousness, right? And I can see that now. But, you know, I spent many evenings kind of in a bit of a sulk because that part of me won and I was so on autopilot, so caught up and brought into that belief, that thought that I slept walked through far too many family meals. And, and then when I realised, ah, I, I know to your point that part of me was a hurt younger part of me that really craved acknowledgement, it craved recognition, it wasn't an evil part of me, it was a younger, more vulnerable part of me when I was able to give that part of me what it needed and by being able to appreciate and recognise my own day without having to wait for my husband to ask me about it. That, you know, I started a new ritual about how do I appreciate myself and recognise my own wins from that day? Why should I be reliant on my husband asking for that even to take place? And this whole, all this domino effect happened, uh, which changed that, my reaction to that external stimulus. But that's an example where I was able to wake up once and now... I'm free of that particular trigger, but there's other things that can still trigger that part of me, that small proving gold star striving younger part of me that is, will always be part of me. You talk about the next part of that curve or finity curve being about letting be. What does letting be look like? Mm. Well, letting be is really about getting clear on what is my essence? Who am I being when I'm being most myself? What is the unique way that the best of humankind has chosen to express itself through me? So who is Helen being when, when you're being most yourself? Who am I being when I'm being most myself? Um, letting be is really about having real clarity on that and you know understanding of those essential oil blends which ones are the ones in your blend and you know roughly what is the part mix and it's not an exact science and my understanding of my essence keeps changing and sometimes we don't really understand our essence we've got to ask other people that know us well you know who am I being when I'm being most myself you know what do you think is unique about the energy that I bring and by asking that and tuning into that and noticing when we're really, for me, when I'm at my very best, work feels like productive play. When I'm in the state of productive play, that work feels easeful, 
there's lightness and play that I feel activated and alive like life feels vivid these are the moments when I know I'm working from a connection to my essence and the more I work with this the, the clearer I get on what is my unique way of being and letting be is really about having awareness of that understanding the things that pull us away from those states of being being able to get back into that state of being more quickly when we do find ourselves off track and then the final bits around letting go and letting in is letting go is about releasing the burdens that can pull us off track and letting in is about really restoring our vitality and, and nourishing ourselves and also restoring trust in ourselves. So that, that's kind of the complete practice. It occurs to me in the letting be, you mentioned the notion of playfulness and we even mentioned before about childhood that for people there may be some insight when they're looking for that moment where they felt most themselves or when other people might have noticed they were most themselves because we can put on a certain kind of mask and performance for maybe Mm -hmm. the adults in our life to look back and think, in my childhood, what was going on? And I had a fascinating conversation with somebody who I've not seen in over 35 years. We connected on Facebook and she was quite important in my childhood between the years of about eight and 12. And she was saying things that she remembered and we were having a lovely time reminiscing. And she said, I always thought you'd grow up to be a dancer. I was gobsmacked. I was thinking, what? Apparently sometime between the ages of 8 and 12, she has such a strong memory of me, 35 years past that fact, of being a dancer and always dancing around the room and grabbing a scarf or something and twirling it around. And I look and think, okay, so is the essential nature of Helen to be a dancer? And what I've come to appreciate with many of these things when I'm unpacking them is The essential nature of Helen, I think, is to express myself Mm. in some way. Dance happened to be a form that was available to me around that age. And now there are other forms in which I do. And sometimes there's a moment where I think, "Mm, I'm probably too much in my head. And maybe there's an opportunity to do something in my body. But I'm very aware when I'm doing the work of facilitation in groups that there is a part where I recognize I embody being in the room and in the work that I do, that I am the vessel through which my knowledge and insight and questions can pass. And so, yeah, there's a sense where it's not a direct translation, but I recognize, uh, to your point, an essence, a a hint, Mm. something, a tip that comes from that way back when I was in that age. But yes, at the very initial, it was like, dancer, what? No, but yeah, finding that, and I encourage people who are listening, don't worry about things so literally. Maybe it was Mm. you were thinking pirate or fireman, and you're like, that's crazy talk. That's not the essence of somebody, but it's like, yeah, and what was a pirate? What was it about a pirate? Maybe it was something about being an adventurer and living without risks and on the edge of society. That may give some hints to that part of letting be. Mm, I love that. And I love that the the essence of the dance was self-expression, which continues, which is enduring through your work now. And facilitation is a form of dance. You know, I'm a facilitator yes. myself and you're dancing with the energy of the people in the room. For me, facilitation is most certainly a dance. And so this idea of working with the energy in yourself and in others for the purpose of self-expression is to me, you know, a beautiful continuation of what your friend saw in you as a child. And I think 
there are real clues in our childhood. And often when I talk to my coaching clients about, do you have a childhood memory where you just remember feeling fully alive and activated where you were in this powerful state? And and I and a lot of my coaching clients are able to reconnect to these states of being, you know, whether it was one client said it was when I was doing cartwheels in the sun in my girlfriend's watermelon farm. She had a very vivid memory. And another male client says, I, I'm really I connected with my essence when I'm fishing was just me and the line and a cold can of beer by my side and I'm relaxed but alert and so he's able to connect into that state in the middle of a boardroom meeting because he was able to recognize that way of being he has a vivid memory that he can anchor back to in any moment just by taking a few deep breaths he's able to really connect into that way of being because he has an embodied experience in him and so that's the practicality of this work trying to anchor to moments when you have really been really vibrantly embodying these ways of being and being able to connect back into that vibrant embodiment in moments that matter. So on the matter of practicality, could you draw us in with maybe two or three tips that you think are quite useful for us to hold or maybe move us forward in this conversation on our own personal journeys? Sure, I'm happy to to share a couple of tips. I, I think the first thing I would offer up is, is start to get to know your essence. Start to figure out who are you being when you're being most yourself. What, is, what are these states of being? Um, and a great place to start is with the VIA Strengths Finder. This is a free diagnostic evidence-based tool that really helps you to start to understand what are your signature strengths, which, which are really often the ingredients of your essence. So if you really have no idea where to begin on that question, I would suggest head over to VIA website. You'll be able to see the diagnostic. Look at your top three to five character strengths and start figuring out how do these things blend through you in a unique way and ask people who know you best, who am I being when I'm being most myself and start to get to know your own essence. Nice. Um, Then for bonus points there, you could think about is there a memory as a child when you felt connected to that way of being that you can, you know, draw on in moments that matter to re-embody that state is is for bonus points. I think the other thing I would really recommend is start tuning into the voices in your head. I think when I first came across the internal family systems therapy, one of the things I loved about it is that it really talks openly that we are all multiples. We all have these multiple parts and it's non-pathologizing in its approach to say you, you don't have, you know, a multiple personality disorder. We all have parts and the voices in our head is often the inner chatter between these parts so I would say my second tip is get to know these voices in your head as you said Helen so beautifully start to appreciate them understand what is their motivation what are they trying to do most of our parts really crave safety they they crave connection and love and sometimes they become misguided in their efforts to either remain safe or feel connected but by getting to know these parts of us we're able as you said so beautifully to get them in the back seat with respect and so we can get back behind the steering wheel and I think the third thing I would say is it's never too late you know no matter how far off course you've drifted it doesn't matter if you've spent your entire working life being dictated to by a particularly strong part of you that really isn't reflective of your true nature it's never too late to work with that part to be able to step into a more empowered version of yourself and start to make different choices that are going to get you on a path 
to really activating your potential. The, the biggest regret of the dying reportedly is not having lived a life that is true to ourselves. And, you know, that's so incredibly sad that, that so many of us go to our graves never really having lived a life that is true to ourselves. So it's never too late to start being more deliberate, to feel more empowered and have more agency in our choice uh, of how do we create a working life that uplifts us and those we care most about. What a lovely sentiment. So Cassie, tell people, where can they find out more information about you? And I will put links on the website as well, but tell us about the book and the Centre of Self-Fidelity. Right. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you're on LinkedIn, you can find me under Cassandra Goodman. I'm, I'm always posting on LinkedIn. That's a nice place to start. And I would love to connect on my website, selffidelity.com. You can um, subscribe to my blog. So I'm writing a weekly blog I call Hello Monday Morning, which is all about small ways you can uplift your working week. So that is, of course, free. So you can subscribe to my free weekly blog. On my website, I also have created a, a self-reflective inquiry tool that you can answer 30 questions to figure out are you being true to yourself and once you answer those questions you'll get a copy of my free self-fidelity guide so they're good places to start of course you if you want to buy my book you can find that on my website as well and yeah i just love to stay connected even though i've been doing this work for several years now i really do consider myself to be a fellow pioneer and i love to stay connected with others who are also trying to figure out how do we be true to ourselves and how do we activate more of our potential in our very short and precious lifetime. So I'd love to connect with any listeners that, that would like to be part of that journey together. Great. Thank you, Cassie. There's some lovely connection points there between the self-unlimited idea and the self-fidelity. And let me just make the connection in closing for people. I'm very strong around the idea that one of the responsibilities of self-unlimited is reign, that you are in the sovereign and you are reigning over your workscape. And I would encourage you that whatever the version of reign is going to be, a key part of that is self-knowledge. And Cassie's thoughts and books on self-fidelity can be an excellent tool to help you tap into that and get clarity. So long may the reign of your workscape be. And also to the reign of Cassie Unlimited and Helen Unlimited. Thanks so much, Helen. I really enjoyed our chat. Thanks, Cassie. Workscapes are changing everywhere. For more goodness to change your workscape, visit www.beselfunlimited.com 